0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrine Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Dungeons! Carbon Scrubbing! Jonathan Tweet! And Julius Evola. Everyone remembers their first trip to the island of Alamarha.
1: You mean that strange, conspiracy-ridden island off the coast of North Africa, known for its lax regulations and mysteriously authoritarian government?
0: Uh, I thought it was in the Mediterranean. Didn't everyone? Atlas Games, the publisher of Feng Shui and Unknown Armies, is at it again with a brand new Kickstarter. This time it's a new edition of
1: Over the Edge, the legendary role-playing game of weird urban danger.
0: Jonathan Tweet is back at the keys, inviting us to join him in creating unique, Unorthodox characters ready to get into all kinds of trouble.
1: It's the same Alamarha you always knew, only this time it's completely different.
0: If rampant New Age occultism, gangs of baboons, twisted assassins, and mad scientists in a modern-day setting of weirdness and menace tickle your fancy, this is the Kickstarter for you.
1: Over the Edge is now Kickstarting, and you can make your pledge at
0: atlas-games.com slash kickstartote. Offer open
1: to humans and
0: tulpas. Tulpas before pledging, ensure your credit card is valid and not part of the illusion.
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the friendly confines of the Gaming Hut. And in the Gaming Hut, Patreon backer Elias Helfer asks, or interjects, (laughs) I pricked up my ears when the both of you, paragons of story and character-driven role-playing that you are, both praised the dungeon as a form of role-playing. What is the awesome thing about a dungeon? And first of all, hey, Elias Helfer, thanks for knowing we are right. That <laughs> saves so much time. Yeah, so it's well-framed, Elias. You rule, Elias. Well done. Uh, so, Robin, what is the awesome thing about a dungeon?
0: Well, one of the dictums, uh, one of the things I always say, going all the way back to Robin's Laws of Game Mastering, is if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Are people having fun uh, running dungeons? Statistically, demonstrably, yeah, statistically. <laughs> Uh as a percentage of people having fun role-playing, the vast majority of them are having fun playing in dungeons. Ergo, dungeons work. It's like saying, do cars work? Do they get people from place to place? Yes, they do. So the question is not, do they succeed in that, but how and why? And so... Uh, one of the great things about the dungeon as a technology is that it is user friendly. It is easy to use as a DM, as a beginning GM in particular. It is a great way, uh, to, uh, get your feet wet and you might spend, uh, your entire career as, as a game master, uh, just running dungeons for people who love dungeons. And if you're having fun, uh, see previous statement. Um, and, and right. they're, uh, easy to do and, uh, unlike story and character, uh, which require a level of uh, analysis about how stories work and uh, a ability to kind of read people at the table, uh, that your basic dungeon is is a great uh, place to get started. And on a night where everybody's, uh, even the most sophisticated uh, uh, manipulators of of narrative structure, uh, can just uh, sit back and have the fun of, well, we go into this door. Boom, bah, oh, uh, oh, oh, search, 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 oh, stab, stab, oh, more searching. Okay, next room. Uh, it's just a, a very efficient way of, uh, and if not player driven, it certainly feels super player driven to the people choosing which door to open next.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the dungeon is basically a story map, uh, just like the story map of any other scenario. It's just that the, you know, arrows and you know, uh, squares are rooms and corridors and the dungeon exists to provide you with that story map in physical form so that everyone can be on the same page and say, yes, we have decided to go from point A, the outside of the dungeon, to point B, the deepest, dankest treasure vault of the dungeon. And maybe it'll take us a few tries if it's a really boss dungeon, or maybe we can do it in one epic hall in which resource management and staying alive and do we eat kobold and do we eat kobold without catch up and all the other questions begin to come in and change the nature of the game. And that's one of the other things about a dungeon is even though it's a static environment or seemingly so, it's ultra changeable because even a question of how long do we spend in the dungeon changes the nature of the story in a way that how long do we spend in the haunted house doesn't even necessarily. I mean, I guess if you spend overnight, then yeah, but that's the haunted house story is you spent one night there. Now you either are done or you're, or you're not, done, or, or the haunted house was boring. I mean, that's what's going on. So a dungeon is, is that iterative quality to it that a lot of other gaming environments don't have. Um, Also, I would push back a bit and say, obviously you can have character driven role playing in a dungeon because one of the things about a dungeon is literally anything can be down there. So if you've got a character who is looking for their dad in the lamest possible character hook they go down there and they find their dad's name carved into one of the walls of the dungeon and they're like oh my gosh dad was down here I wonder what happened and they get a story moment maybe you can uh, plant clues to their dad's you know later existence but they have something that happens that's character driven you can put something for every single dungeoneer into the dungeon that feeds into their character just the same way that you would put something that feeds into their character in a courtroom or a, a fancy dress ball or um, a, a, a spy headquarters or or any of the other places that you might go in a role-playing game. So the, the the dichotomy that is presented is, I think, maybe a false one in that particular case. Now, certainly the story of we're sick of the dungeon and we leave it is seemingly – says, well, story gaming uh, would be different than that. Well, story gaming falls apart regardless of what the story is. If the characters say we're sick of the story and we're leaving it. So the story is – why are they in the dungeon? What got them in there? And it can just be solid gold goodies, which Lord knows has been motive enough for virtually all of human history. Um And if the character is also solid gold goodies and a chance to uh, do that necromancer a dirt, uh, then that's even better because then you can stock the dungeon specifically to feed that story. So I think that that's, you know, sort of on the meta level, why dungeons work in a game, and even if you're running a, a straight-up modern-day game, if you're running Knights of Black Agents and you go down into the Odessa catacombs, uh guess what? You're dungeon playing. Beowulf has a great dungeon sequence in it. Theseus in the Labyrinth is, is kind of a dungeon sequence, although there's only one monster, and um uh, he uh, sweet-talked an NPC into helping him. But that's still core story from the core elements of Western tradition, and just to say that it's not the same as story that we're telling above ground or with shotguns is kind of, I think, you know, make a distinction without
0: a difference. Right. And it sort of combines things that appeal both to uh, sandbox players who want something to be very player driven and uh, mission oriented players who want something very specific set in front of them to do. So uh, it gives you kind of the best of both worlds in that sense, in that the everybody knows what to do next. There's another door. There's a choice of doors. Mm-hmm. Now there's all sorts of things that you can do as a, as a GM to uh, behind the curtains, uh, make sure that if, you know, if you're uh, leaving little nuggets of things that can become emergent story, uh, that you can make sure that uh, rather than saying, well, the uh, graffiti that uh, his father carved in the wall is in uh, room 13. And only if they go into room 13, are they ever going to find that and activate that thing that changes this level of, of, of narration, well, you know what? On encounter number three, whatever room it is, they're going to find the thing. Right. And so it is... Uh, the dungeon is also, uh, especially for uh, beginning players, but not exclusively for them, a great uh, thing for story to emerge from, that there's a sort of a core activity that you're doing, and then from that you can discover... Uh what it is that you're interested in, and I think most people when they uh look back on their great early role playing experiences if they happened in a dungeon environment, they don't necessarily remember that great fight we had in that room with the dais and the centipedes and uh that sort of weird fire brazier thing that uh uh Jimbo stuck his hand into. You maybe don't remember that, but you do remember the first oh well, remember that time when the magic item that we found in that room when the Guy who used to own the magic item came and, uh, wanted it back. And, you know, I'd taken his name already, named myself after, cause I knew this magic item had this legendary name and I was coming, you know, that all of a sudden, uh, you are surprised by story. And so, um, and another thing about dungeons is it gives a lot of opportunity, uh, perhaps even more so than a more mission driven same mystery for players to, uh, characterize uh, their characters by bouncing off one another so that, you know, the fact that the, uh, dwarf is very, uh, directed and wants to go on to the next thing and be very methodical, uh, whereas the elf is intuitive and wants to, uh, just sort of feel their way through it and, uh, you know, forget, uh, I, I just don't have a good feeling about this door versus the dwarf going to be, but we're going to do every door in order because, uh, that's, that's how you dungeon. That's how you dungeon. And so as soon as you have that moment, uh, come into play, Again, you're discovering characterization uh, rather than having it presented to you as part of the framework. And that can be uh,
1: kind of like a bottle episode on a TV show. Yes. Because you're literally in a dungeon. You can't like go and do something else. You have to interact with each other. Right.
0: And the very bottled nature of it is also something that builds suspense. Right. Because you have options, but your options are foreclosed that, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever happens, you're down in this place that has walls. And uh mm-hmm. you're limited by, monsters. yeah, and so okay. you know you run into you know, there's a wall of rats coming toward you uh well, uh you know, if you're out just in a city and there's a wall of rats, you just go, well, are we gonna go into the tavern and just uh, have a few beers and wait for the rats to subside. Well, mm-hmm. in the dungeon, you don't get to to wait, you've got to deal with that in in some way or another, and so uh, that is a way of narrowing choice so that the players, uh, you know, here's a problem, I have to deal with it, and now the question is, how do I deal with it? It's being put in front of me and the stairs are back there, and if we want to keep going, we gotta do this, as opposed to a more sort of free form environment where especially if you have, have yet to get onto the uh the skill of motivating the players to to engage with the premise, well you don't have to tell them to engage with the premise if there's a wall of rats coming toward them between them and the mm-hmm. way out of the dungeon. They're, the premise is engaging with them.
1: Right. And another thing I, I find that a, a good dungeon, one that's well built by the the GM or by the company that sold in the dungeon, has got a lot of different sorts of Ways to make decisions. And it's not necessarily, oh, there's a wall of rats. Well, better fireball them. It can be, there's a wall of rats. Let's go up on the ceiling. There's a wall of rats. Let's drop a magic door and wait for them to starve to death or, or eat each other. There's a wall of rats. Let's, you know, there's a million different responses, even within this very narrowly constrained story item. And so that sort of heightens creativity and because it gives those necessary walls, as you say, so you don't have story paralysis. There's a wall of rats. Uh, I don't know. There's a million things I could be doing, but now you're in a dungeon, and and it sort of forces creative decision making in a way that maybe facing that same wall of rats in another circumstance might not. Um, or you could say, well, I just go back to my house and I get mastiffs, and I've solved the problem. Unless you have the summon mastiff spell with you, um, it it doesn't do that. And and another thing that dungeoning does that I've just find out in play or though I think we all found out in play, but maybe we forget it is it just gives you um, an excuse to do repeated fights. Most games uh privilege fights as a activity. That's not even, it's not the core activity. There's some very lovingly designed systems in hand for it to be the activity. And by repeatedly having fights, you're engaging in the same sort of reward response mechanism that you get just by watching, you know, sports. It's like, are they going uh, to get a first down? Are they not going to get a first down? Are they going to complete the pass? Or are they not going to complete the pass? And you have the constant, is it? Yay. Is it? Yay. Is it? Boo. And that, that watching a, a, a good football game or a hockey game or whatever will provide you only you're doing it yourself, which is the whole fun of role-playing as opposed to all other activities ever. And that level of reward don't even call it narrative reward. It's experiential reward is very pure in a dungeon in a way that maybe it isn't in another thing. And maybe that's just because as GM's not in the dungeon, you feel a little weird about, you know, here we are in, you know, uh, downtown Cleveland and look, there's a wall of rats and look, there's an egg, and look, there's a boulette, and look, there's, and it's like, how many monsters are we going to fight? We're just in Cleveland, man. And, That would feel weird in other settings, but in a dungeon, you've sort of given yourself the permission to create this sort of arena of uh of of spectacle and this arena of combat that gives you that uh, experiential reward. And dungeons explicitly license it in a way that other settings, even ones that are just as full of bad guys to kill. I mean, if you were running a game where you're going to go into an ISIS terrorist compound, it would not feel the same... As going into a dungeon and killing the same hit dice worth of bad guys. Uh, the dungeon has a different reward structure and a different, um, uh, environment. And maybe that's just settler effect. Maybe that's just from all of us playing Dungeons and Dragons when we were 11 and having that, that, that jazz of we can do anything going through our veins and we still remember it. But I think a lot of it is the inherent activity of fighting monsters in an enclosed space is inherently a, a fun spectator sport that you're actually engaging in.
0: Right. Now, uh, as Elias points out, the stuff that we do tends to be more atmosphere and story and background uh, driven. Uh, and to tell you the truth, I would, if I was asked to run a game for people who just want to randomly kill stuff in rooms, that would not be my jam. Uh, in in part, I've been doing this for a long time, and <laughs> as a, I think, as a as a the the downfall, I think of the dungeon is that the DM tires of that. Long before the players do.
1: Yeah, I think that's certainly that. That's certainly true. Yeah,
0: that the the or re- can be true. Right, the reward to effort curve for the DM is much higher, and the challenge of continually to ma- making the next fight, uh, especially if it's just a series of disconnected fights before you know the emergent narrative kicks in, or if your players go, "Oh, emergent narrative, erase that graffito, chiseled off the wall. We just want to fight more stuff." Uh, that that's when you start to get, uh, you know, well, could we do something with some characters a I can play? Cabin or fever or dungeon a fever. Or mystery or something. Um, and so that's, uh, that's, I think one of the inherent challenges in it and that, uh, you know, when I run something more dungeony, I try to find a, a, a different angle on it. And sometimes that succeeds and sometimes that, uh, fails. And, uh, I think that's part of why, uh, you know, the, uh, particularly among players of a certain generation there's the idea that oh well yes dungeons and dragons that's that's the crude commercial uh thing from which we artists have have separated ourselves from and that there is a real uh as a gm in particular uh you want to flap your wings and sometimes you're kind of dragging your players kicking and screaming away from you know we're rummaging in the rubble for uh, for treasure and fighting rat people.
1: Right. Yeah, the sort of dungeon fatigue, I think, can be real uh, because any repetitive activity becomes tiresome. That's literally what tiresome means. And I think that, like everything else in role-playing, you keep an eye on your players, and you keep an eye on your own energy level. And it's like, I'm not giving a 100% as a GM. I'm only giving 80% or 50%. Or if you look at the players, and they're just sort of rotely going through the dungeon and not getting... Excited about it? It's it's like a game between you know I don't know uh, Cleveland and Jacksonville or something, and you're like, ah, this is going to be tiresome. Um, you don't um uh, necessarily have the uh you you don't have to stick to it, is what I'm saying. Um, and they're and they're not all going to be Super Bowls.
0: And and as a designer, dungeon fatigue is also something you have to be aware of, and the fact that people perceive themselves as having escaped the dungeon for good is something that you need to take into account. So, for example, in the uh. Intro adventure in, uh, Yellow King role-playing game, there's an homage to, uh, the Phantom of the Opera, and there's a point where you wind up in a corridor with some death traps, and, uh, guess what? Gaston LaRue wrote about death traps, uh, long before Gary Gygax was a, uh, a, a twinkle in Mrs. Gygax's eye, uh, but, uh, the, a lot of the players who went into this, uh, looking for a, a mystery horror game, when they got to the, the trap bit went, oh, no, out of genre, and, uh, mathematically and literary historically it was in genre Mm -hmm. but in their emotional perceptions that reminded them of uh uh, dungeoneering and they didn't like that anymore or maybe never did and so uh when i was uh revising that uh after playtest notes that chunk becomes optional and you can sort of gauge whether you know your players uh want to run into a portcullis or don't Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, there are certainly, you know, the the feeling that Elias is kind of alluding to that, oh, this is a, a stage that we have gotten past. Um, mm-hmm. y- there are people who are genuinely past it and don't want to see another Portcullis again. And that is also fine and something that as a designer you also have to be aware of, especially when you're doing something that doesn't say Dungeon on the Tin. Right. And speaking of escaping and Portcullis is... I see a portcullis lowering, so if we don't move to the next segment, uh, we'll be trapped forever in this one, and that would be a bad thing about dungeons. Uh, so, Ken, let's get out of here.
1: I will uh, keep the idle, and you keep the quit. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia.
0: Yeah, but there's more to that story.
1: In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos.
0: A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta
1: Green. Caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity. Caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions.
0: Written by Kenneth Hite, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning gumshoe engine.
1: The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction.
0: Delta Green falls in 1970. The world... Falls shortly thereafter.
1: The Fall of Delta Green. Available for pre-order now in the Pelgrane Press store.
0: It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? The bubbling of beakers and the wheeze of CPUs as they complete a uh, computation-heavy regression analysis tell us that we're about to have fun with science! And uh, this time around, uh, often when you're extrapolating uh, new science facts into science fiction and or science nonsense, uh, you are uh, extrapolating something negative and uh, proposing that, oh, this will only get worse. That is often correct. This time, we're going to see uh, what uh, might happen when we extrapolate from something hopeful. And that hopeful thing is that it may be that affordable atmospheric carbon reclamation is going to come faster, cheaper, and at a bigger scale than previously predicted. So uh, recently it was announced that researchers at a company called Carbon Engineering, uh, which is uh, headquartered in Calgary uh, and has a plant in British Columbia, have been operating a pilot plant that extracts CO2 from the air uh, since 2015. Um, uh, the designer is a man named Klaus Lackner, and it turns out that this doesn't require, or rather uh, it takes advantage of, existing technology, particularly the technologies of uh, paper pulp manufacturing, uh, which would be ironic if a notorious polluting industry was uh, used as the springboard to uh a uh, cure for uh greenhouse gases but at any rate they seem to be able to manage to uh extract uh carbon from the air and turn it uh, back into fuel again and uh, has been estimated that if this ever came online it would cost about 600 dollars a ton uh, but rather it looks like they may be able to get that down closer to like somewhere between 94 and 230 dollars a ton which would be enough to make it affordable. That the uh, gas reclaimed from the uh, from the air around us uh, would uh, be a little more expensive than than currently, uh, but it might be better than uh, having the whole planet fry uh, into an omelet. So, uh, so Ken, uh, what happens to the world if carbon reclamation uh, becomes a thing and uh, prevents us from turning into? Uh, but rather saves our bacon.
1: Well, it is a thing I always say that the new material science will save us all. And, uh, despite ourselves and the, uh, new, uh, numbers that came out, uh, I guess last, uh, month or thereabouts about the new carbon extraction, uh, system. The whole system was designed by a guy named, a guy named Klaus Lackner. Uh, he originally wanted to build self-replicating solar panel building robots uh and turn them loose in the Sahara to generate uh, electricity and then build more solar panels out of uh sand that it would find in the uh, Sahara. That turned out to be impractical, possibly because armies of robots wandering around the Sahara spells nothing but danger. Um But also and
0: robots don't like sand in their gears. That's that's number one thing I know about robots. And so he took sort of a little bit of that plan, which
1: was that they would pull carbon dioxide out of the air as part of their other processes and said, what if I just built that? And that's basically what he's been doing ever since uh, he um, uh, wrote the paper, and then came to work at Columbia, I think, in uh, the early 2000s. And the numbers, as with anything that you do over time, and is based on basically sound science, have been coming down. So the question is: first of all, obviously, you'd have to have a global tax regime to pay for it, because cheap is not free. The notion being that that would be enforced by the by the same sort of treaties that, like, the Kyoto Protocol and whatnot, which. uh only skeptics and bad people would point out are totally not enforced now, but, you know, later, uh, maybe they would be. So if the system works well, the other thing you have to do is figure out what you're going to do with all that uh, stupid uh, carbon, because you can't burn it because that releases the problem again. Right now, it's being turned into calcium carbonate at the, at the plant, and then they extract the uh, calcium back out by heating it which I think maybe might release stuff but what do I know I'm not a chemist
0: right. well one of the plans is or one of the proposals and one of the articles was in fact to have carbon neutral fuel so yeah. that you burn it again and then you recapture it again and that eventually that becomes a self-sustaining cycle and I think that's the thing so let's as with all press releases about future industrial processes uh, a measure of of skepticism is required and we'll see if this really happens but for the the purpose of this uh, segment. Uh, of the fun. Uh, of the fun part of the science. Uh, let us imagine that carbon neutral fuel uh, becomes a thing. Immediately there are big geopolitical effects because of course there are uh, nations that owe their economic and therefore political clout to the fact that they are oil producers and uh, uh Canada is among them. Uh, but uh, it's becoming an increasingly small part of our economy. But Russia, for example, uh depends enormously on its uh, gasoline uh, or its, its petroleum industry and uh would be in an even direr set of circumstances and also of course the gulf states uh, power uh, depends on uh being able to uh provide the energy needs of uh the uh industrial nations so uh what happens to uh Russia and the gulf if uh we can just uh Suck gas out of the air.
1: Well, you can, you can see sort of a preview of that happened, uh, during the sort of high point of fracking, uh, which briefly brought the price of oil per barrel down to about $40, which was more than enough to nearly destroy, uh, the economies of all those countries. It did Putin's blood pressure no good. That's for sure. Um, it was probably the straw that broke the back of the Venezuelan shambles. Uh, and of course it, sort of focused the mind very strongly in Iran and probably triggered at least some of the Green Revolution attempts uh, there. Although, of course, the Iranian government stomped those back out. So we would see more of that. I think we would see more uh, Russian adventurism in an attempt to sort of expand their, uh, remit or, or to lock their current, um, uh, gas, uh, contracts into place regardless of actual value. Um, you would see more unrest certainly in Iran and the other, uh, Gulf states. I, I think we saw Bahrain have some bad problems during that same era. And obviously the, um, Abu Dhabi and the UAE are held together by duct tape and, uh, $20 bills. Those would be in trouble. The current. Um, crown prince of Saudi Arabia. I, I, admittedly, uh, like nuclear fusion being 10 years away forever Um, uh, for the last 75 years, uh, the current crown prince, whoever they have been, have always been about to modernize Saudi Arabia away from petrochemical dependence <laughs> yeah. for at least my adult lifetime. Yes. But the new current one, he, he certainly, you know, <laughs> he certainly had a lot of his family arrested and may or may not have blown up the head of the Saudi secret
0: police, uh, so he may be more serious about it one way or the other. He's modernized a lot of uh, relevant into uh, interrogation chambers. Exactly. Turned them upside down and shook the money out of their pockets.
1: Right. Did a little carbon reclamation on some of the more uh, recalcitrant members,
0: no doubt. And and gold reclamation, I believe, as well.
1: Mm -hmm. So I think we would see sort of more of the same of that. Uh, The interesting question, I think, becomes um, if you can uh, get carbon neutral fuel costs down to the point where they're actually straight up competitive with things like coal because, uh, coal obviously is horrible and dangerous to mine. Uh, the, the coal pits in, in, in Britain have been closed for a while, but we still have the coal belt in America. China of course is digging coal out like nobody's business. So the question is what happens to all those jobs? First of all, that that caused great social turmoil nearly brought down the, uh, the thatcher government in Britain. It may or may not have been part of what brought Trump to power here. Uh, one can only imagine what would happen in China if suddenly every coal miner is told thanks but no thanks. Um uh the, the the party has now got cool carbon neutral uh suctions, um and it probably wouldn't be pretty. At the very least it would be a whole bunch of um uh very uh, uh serious labor relations conferences, and at the worst it would probably be some sort of uh low simmering civil war in the Chinese hinterlands so-, yeah, so
0: we would we would, ha- would want to hope that uh the Carbon reclamation industry is labor intensive. One one hopes that, but, but like seems, most industries, seems less so than coal. Yeah, yeah, and the the labor that it might be
1: intensive of is probably not the same sort of labor that going down into a uh, tunnel and chopping at it with a pickaxe is. In that, I suspect there's um, uh, there, there's a, a higher educational. Um, uh, step up to get into it than, uh, just being willing to cut coal out with a pick. Right.
0: I, I am picturing a one robot in the plant <laughs> that hits a button. Wishing you um, could,
1: um, uh, build, um, uh, uh, solar cells in the desert, maybe. Right.
0: And so, uh, since history is full of horrible ironies and so are extrapolations, uh, despite my earlier utopian statements, uh, you could also envision a further future where carbon extraction is so popular that uh, all of the carbon gets sucked out of the air, and we discovered that, uh, oh, wait a minute, it's getting cold again. <laughs> that, uh, you know, that uh, the current temperature is alarming, but if we go back to, you know, the temperatures of the 30s and 40s, that might uh, equally uh, have uh, a uh, a set of comfort and safety uh, demerits that uh, we don't want to contemplate, and you could have sort of a reverse tragedy of the continents when there are so many plants uh, trying to suck carbon out of the air, that they suck so much carbon out of the air that we uh, get uh, tipped back into the hysteria of the 70s about the possibility of, of a new ice age. Now, whether that would be a new ice age or not uh, would be uh, yet another question, but uh, it's, uh certainly would be a weird, horrible irony if, uh, you know, because just like the, the problem is that you can't uh, get everybody to stop using energy now, uh, you know, that you would need some sort of global protocol to precisely uh, leverage the amount of carbon being taken out of the atmosphere uh, so that you would get the, uh, what's the world temperature? If you could use this to manipulate the world temperature, how could the world agree on what the temperature would be? Because, of course, uh, whatever you do, there's going to be a renegade who does something else. There's somebody in China is making ozone again. And they're not making ozone, they're making a... a Chlorofluorocarbons, the thing right. that destroys the ozone. And so there might be a, a story in there about, uh, you know, hunting down the, the renegade carbon scrubbing plant that is not licensed to, uh, pull its carbon out of the air and, uh, and what you do when, when there are too many people trying to, uh, make carbon neutral gas. You, know, you could envision a, a weird future where, you know, the, uh, they start subsidizing the tar sands again in order to pump more carbon into the air in order to uh, try and stay ahead of the overactive carbon scrubbers.
1: Basically, it's like um, uh, a couple who live in a house with one thermostat and different body temperatures. Yes. Not that I know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> there is There used to be a theory that we were in sort of the tail end of the current interglacial, because technically we are in an ice age right now. It's just that we are in a warm period in the middle of our ice age. So... Uh, if you depending on how you count your interglacials and how you count your averages, we're either about two thirds of the way through an average or halfway through an average. But there are plenty of interglacials that are really short. So if in fact the next ice age is right around the corner, as everyone used to believe in uh, the era when the Clash uh, were writing about it, we could indeed find out that we have accidentally set the thermostat too low. But I suppose. Um, getting more carbon into the atmosphere has not been a giant problem. The thing is that we're not super sure how long the lag is because we're not sure, for example, if the current uh measured warming comes from the last bunch of uh dumping or from the current bunch of dumping. And if the lag is greater, then almost nothing we do is going to make a difference for the next uh, couple of thousand years because the carbon's already up there and uh, the 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 earth is already making those changes uh, even if we suck it all back out those changes are in motion and it's going to be harder and harder to undo that so maybe the constant back and forth thing of uh rogue carbonators and rogue decarbonators creates temperature uh instability along your uh, lines of your uh, beloved Superstorm movies, your Geostorms and Day Afters, Tomorrow and whatnot, where um, uh, there's global cataclysms because the uh, actual content of the atmosphere keeps bouncing up and down, uh, not necessarily because of any given problem with the content at any
0: given moment. Right, and that could give you all sorts of uh, different uh, uh post-civilization uh, catastrophes uh, or civilization-ending catastrophes. You could have the thing where the uh, the magnetic pole flips or, you know, suddenly the, uh, the North Pole is in, is in Mattoon, Illinois and the South right. po- Pole is, uh, you know, whatever's on the other side of Mattoon, Illinois. So, uh, there's all sorts of, uh, Indian Ocean somewhere, I suspect. Yeah. Um, it, it would have a, a big chunk of ice in it uh, after a while, I would think. So, uh, on that note, I guess, uh, if you're going to ask someone to think up utopia, don't ask me. I'm going to recognize on yeah. you.
1: Uh, yeah, don't, 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 we are probably, uh, there, there's a reason we don't have a utopia hut, I guess. Exactly. Because yes. it would be small because and someone, unfurnished.
0: Someone would immediately ruin the utopia hut and there'd be barbed wire and execution. <laughs> and, uh, just
1: like all the other utopias. Just
0: like all the other utopia huts, exactly. Uh, well on that note, as our, as our utopia is turning rapidly into a dystopia, let's, uh, let's sneak on out and, uh, hope we, uh, escape before we're in prison. What happens when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's a parasitical
1: game system that is added into your steampunk RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more?
0: In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X.
1: Logically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln
0: by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English... Not Swedish. Keep the show alive
1: by joining such well-scrubbed Patreon backers as... Todd Olson! The Redacted
0: Files Podcast! Craig Maloney! Jan Zaleski! And Ryan Mannix! So, hey everybody! Uh, you may think that it's uh, 2018 and that the over-the-edge Kickstarter from Atlas Games, designed by Jonathan Tweet, is currently on. But, in fact, you've tumbled back into time, back into Gen Con 2017. Uh, And you may recall from all of the other interview segments that we're in the middle of audio chaos because we're at the Embassy Suites Hotel, which is being remodeled, and our phones are going off, and people are coming in looking for their sunglasses. But, thankfully, Jonathan Tweet, is here to bring, as he always does, rationality and order to all manner of chaos.
1: Rationality and order. Here we go, boys. And you can tell how effectively that will work by the absence of transient noise during this segment.
0: (laughs) So, before we talk about Over the Edge, I want to get uh, a bit into uh, Grandmother Fish. Yeah. Uh, The... uh, one of the rare things that my colleagues has made that I was able to give away as a, a gift to a child. Nice. Um, so yeah, you don't don't I'm, give I'm, over the edge. I'm sitting right here, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> don't give over the edge to a child. Yes. Uh, but, but, so Grandmother Fish yeah. uh, is now uh, published by a major publisher, yeah. which is what you really need with a kid's book. This is what you really
2: need. So uh, the, f- the first edition we self-published and we sold out, and then Macmillan picked us up, so uh, they released their edition last September, and now um, there's going to be a a Chinese version, and an Italian version is um, also in the works, and the Italian version is being presented by Telmo Piavani. I don't know if I'm getting that right, but he's a famous uh, philosopher of education in Italy, so things are moving. There
0: you go. Um, So for those who don't yet know what Grandmother Fish is,
2: is, it is the first book to teach evolution to preschoolers. Uh, and so when my daughter was a preschooler many years ago, she's 22, but when she was little, I wanted her to have this book, and no one had written it yet. And so I said, I to write it, but it's really hard to do a kid's book on evolution, so it took me 15 years to finally crack it and figure out how to do it, and I did. Put it on Kickstarter, and now it's around the world with Macmillan. It's pretty exciting.
0: And so what uh, sort of... Uh Has the experience been like for you? What kind of uh, feedback have you gotten? How how has it changed uh, your approach to publishing and what you're doing in the world?
2: Uh, So it was really exciting to get all the positive feedback with the Kickstarter. We funded really well, and lots of people came out um, to sort of support it. Daniel Dennett and Steven Pinker and uh, David Sloan Wilson, Jonathan Haidt, like all these people that I really like. Uh, you know, like personally said they liked the book and what have you tweeted about it or whatever. It's really nice um, And now that the book is out and in a lot of people's hands I see how much kids really love it and that's sort of like a whole new level of gratifying that you know Parents tell me it's their kids favorite book or we read it every night or it's the first book that my kid ever tried to read all the way through or, or what-have-you uh, and so You know, I was sort of doing this as a one-off, like this was my pet project I wanted to do, but now I'm really interested in, what is science communication for kids. Right, and that's, I mean,
1: you can have all the cutting-edge science in the world, but if the only people they're talking to are other people with PhDs, it doesn't have any real effect on society. Right. And that's why you're, you know, way back in the day, you're Stephen Jay Goulds and you're Isaac Asimovs, though as scientists they were you know middle of the road at best right. turn out to have had a, maybe a better effect yeah. than uh, any number of people who are out there figuring out the, the transcription on a given
2: chromosome right, right. dawkins for example like like eo wilson hates him and says he's not even a scientist but for sure he did a ton for science by popularizing the sort of the gene centric view of evolution but yeah exactly it's that communication it's getting this stuff out there to people and that's something i'm really good
0: at so yeah. Do you have a, a follow-up uh, to Grandmother Fish?
2: Uh you Great were, Grandmother Plankton. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it took me fifteen years to do this one, so weird I cut cousin you know, fungus. Right? <laughs> people have <laughs> asking for uh Uncle um, I think Wormy might go too. It's like the bilateria, right? Yeah. You know, the big split between the invertebrates and the vertebrates. Um, so but honestly, uh there's the Clades game, which in time travel terms should be out by the time you're hearing this podcast from Atlas Games. So I have noodled for years on how do you do a game that teaches evolution or works with evolutionary ideas and really gets the science right because games are about making choices and evolution is about things just happening, and so it's almost impossible to make a game that merges the two. So I've got an animal matching game called Clades. A clade is a branch of the evolutionary family tree, so like mammals is a clade, vertebrates is a clade, right? Every clade is part of a bigger clade and has littler clades in it. And uh, and you match animals sort of like with the set rules, um, and you're using evolutionary relationships to do it. So you're not actually like trying to transform your species into another species, but you're coming to terms with which species are related to each other through common ancestors and which aren't. And there's two versions. Clades is the original with... the animals kids know today. And then uh, clades prehistoric, dinosaurs, pterosaurs, right? a mammoth. Yeah, exactly.
0: So l- later you can do a game called... What? Uh, where you uh, find out uh, that different trout are not genetically related.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, huh? Well, so there, are, there is, there's a little bit of head-scratching here because on the whales card, there's also a hippopotamus because whales and hippos together form the clade of hippomorphs. Quipomorphs. You literally made that up here. <laughs> uh, counting
0: on the fact that we're both uh,
1: humanities, Made uh, uh, uh,
0: uh, uh, uh. Uh, So, Over the Edge. But Over the Edge, I, yeah. I think I've heard of this game. It, it may Seems, or may not have familiar to me. penetrated
1: your radar at yeah. some point. Uh, for those who don't know, Robin was a early contributor to Over the Edge, and at the very least, it was saying, hey, Jonathan, you should read William S.
2: Burroughs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, in fact, Robin, you're the one that sort of got me down this track by... Um imagining what it would be like to take a William S. Burroughs book and turn it into a, a role-playing game. So if you're asking who uh, said, hey Michael Jordan, try a jump shot, that would be Robin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh and uh and you worked with me on the original Over the Edge. I I think I said I'd pay you fifty bucks for everything you could produce, and it was so cool I gave you a hundred. I think that was my yeah. uh back in the day. And so this was the role playing game over 25 years ago that I was doing originally just for myself and my friends. And the idea was it would be too weird and too freeform to ever publish. But and, I can, and when I was
0: writing stuff for it, I wasn't for the book. I was yeah. just saying, hey, this should be in your game. Yeah,
2: yeah, like, exactly. Like, and, and Rob Hainso heard what I was doing on, on Alarms and Excursions again, and he wrote me stuff about it. Like it was, you know, I was sort of doing it in public. It started out as a pet project that I was telling everybody about in Alarms and Excursions. Alarms and Excursions, for people who don't know, was
1: a, was a, was a fanzine. Apa-zine. An yeah, apa that you would, uh, you would, and I subscribed to it for a while, and you would get it mailed, and people would contribute little sub-zines to it, yeah. and they'd be compiled. Right. And then you'd be like, oh, look at that, Lisa Padol's running a cool oh. campaign, or Jonathan Tweed is writing a neat thing, or whatever, and you could take part. For the cost of making your own zine and sending yep. in the mimeograph money, okay. this is what people did before the internet. And, and yeah.
0: you're using the past tense, but it's still an ongoing. Yeah, yeah no, you can center.
2: subscribe to it now if you if you wish. Yep. But it's like it's like a forum mm-hmm. that wor- it works on a monthly cycle instead of <laughs> like a five minute cycle. Still had flame wars, right? Right, oh, yeah, same same kind of thing. And so, uh, when you were doing your
1: campaign in public, the, 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 the goal originally was to make something bizarre for your, uh, right.
2: friends to play. I was never gonna do professional role-playing games again. I I'm was going
0: to make something unpublishable, uh, you said in front of John Nephew.
2: <laughs> yes. That's, that's exactly, exactly right. The, the, the king of the island of misfit games. <laughs> yeah. So he heard about it and said he wanted to publish it. And it, you know, this is like weird, modern, alien, drug, strange, DNA, poison, you know, Conspiracy Philip so like Dick
1: and William S. Burroughs Psychic, meet and decide to have right? a baby, but they get all high and fucked up on pills. <laughs> Something like that, yeah.
2: And so. We didn't
1: have Luke on, and I've still got us an adult rating. So yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: and uh, I tried to talk him out of it, and he wouldn't have it, so he published it, and uh, turned out great. And I bought it. I bought it yep. from uh, the game store.
1: Thank you. I believe, even. Not even at a show. And and not a PDF that was the and that was the game that I looked at and said, "Wow, there is literally something besides Call of Cthulhu." <laughs> uh, that, I mean, I'm, there are other designers who can claim, but as far as I'm concerned, you are the Beethoven of gaming. In that, in the face of perfection, you yeah. said, "All right, end run, <laughs> <laughs> right? I, I can't beat Sandy at Call of Cthulhu, Ooh. but I can do this. I thing. can do this right. thing, and so that's your heroic symphony. Yeah, is." Uh, Over the edge, and I'll it was—it it was, it was so amazing to me. And then I—I I read uh, Robin's scenario for it, "Last yeah. Chance Brains" in uh, "Whether the Cuckoo Likes," yeah. which I still believe is one of the maybe ten best scenarios ever written, and it was the first mo- moment I ever fanboyed at Robin was. <laughs> and so, in a way, you're also
2: the father of this podcast. Oh, I love it. I love yeah. it. It's a it's a small world and it's a happy little family. When it it, it's alive. a it's a it's a fun it's a fun time. So yeah. fun scene.
0: In addition to having uh, really groundbreaking, super simplified mechanics, in which uh, basically every ability pretty much uh, is mechanically uh, similar to every other ability, uh, this setting had a very '90s head trippy yeah. uh, sensibility. Uh, so now. Uh, a a number of years later, you are (laughs) revisiting it, uh, not just doing the the lavish new version that was done recently, but uh, an actual new edition. So how uh, does this change to meet uh, the uh, world of 2017? You you can't really say that the world is an ordinary place, and then Alamarha is weird. (laughs) Right, exactly. So what what do you do? The Amplified
1: Necessity for weirdness, <laughs> yeah. Whereas El now, like Pleasantville, it's just a
2: perfectly well-run island with <laughs> yeah. no problems. I, yeah. I mean, you know, it's hard to beat ISIS, right? For <laughs> yeah. like, look at the crazy stuff people could do to each other if only decency didn't prevent it, right? Yeah. Which is kind of what happens on uh, in a game over the edge sometimes. But yeah, it is it it is a strange new world. But on the other hand, I have now just a wealth of experience that I didn't have as a young man about. Society and politics and history and what have you. So now I'm, I feel like I'm going to be able to bring uh, sort of even more to the table. And um, for a long time, I, I re- actively resisted the idea of doing another edition. And I've never repeated myself uh, in game design, and I didn't want to do anything derivative because over the edge. The w- one thing it's not, it's not derivative. And so, <laughs> yeah, I think that's the first statement. So, for me to do another edition, it's like, how do I do that and not be derivative? And the answer is all new mechanics that make the old mechanics look really sort of dated, and then uh, a re envisioned setting where I can take all the characters and conspiracies and groups and weird things that people like and all imagine them again and make them new so that. It's not twenty-five years later. Now, what are the dog faces doing, or whatever? It is, if Tweet were doing this over again and didn't have to follow the continuity, what would he do with the dog faces? And this is going to be my my right. answer to that. So, so it's a reboot. It is a is it, a total reboot. Is it a yeah. gritty reboot? Kids love the <laughs> gritty. Now. I mean, it's already it, it's, it's already gritty. Gritty. It's fairly gritty. And, and really, what it is, it's a dichotomous uh, reboot. So that you, you know, you have desperate. Poor people uh, who have been traumatized and damaged, and you have, uh, you know, beautiful elites with their super genetically engineered dogs and what have you, all sort of in the same setting. So it's uh, there's gritty, and then there's uh, chrome and lavish, and it's that that's one of the things the setting fe- feeds on is the the dichotomy between the various elements on the island.
0: So can you take one of the uh, uh, characters or groups? and uh, take our listeners through what they were in the previous version and, and what they're going to be now.
2: I sure can. What would be a really... Okay, so I can talk about, let's say, the movers. That was one of the big uh, conspiracies in the original group. And they're sort of... Honestly, I, I have not gone back yet and, like, reread the section on the movers. I'll do that after everything is done and see if there's other things I want to do, but I'm trying to come at it fresh. So in the past, they were sort of, you know, the weird mind-control... Uh, conspiracy. And now um, I'm setting them up specifically with uh, like suites of abilities like, you know, there are people today who think that subliminal messages are passed by people touching their face or whatever. And people have this weird programming that yeah, they the can pass. Neuro-linguistic programming. Yeah. yeah, and, and so, well, so that's sort of what they do and that, and that they are operating on this level of uh the things that they are doing are all passing through people's minds and nervous systems without anybody sort of knowing and instead of like, directly controlling your mind they're just using it as a vector for whatever it is that they're doing right and so there's still uh the mind control uh conspiracy but now they have sort of this specific cool little tool that uh, game masters can uh bring in and then the characters uh, will all be new and uh, you know the the whole way that they get described and what have you
0: And uh, so you're saying the mechanics are also a a ground-up redo? Yeah, that's exactly right. And so how would you... uh, Our listeners who love the original are worried that you're going to uh, make it uh, complicated. So how are you going to allay their
2: fears? Uh, so I'm going to do the opposite of make it complicated. When I go back to um, over the edge, it was uh, like you said, the abilities were all could all be sort of treated however you wanted. So you could invent your own ability. Like I'll be, you know, um, pseudo ninja cook. And that's my, and it gives me a suite of skills or whatever. And, and and you still get to do exactly the same thing. Like, you're just, you're building up what traits you want your character to have. But the old 90s way of doing everything is everything you wanted to do, you had to dice for. And then you rolled dice against each other. When there was a battle, you rolled to see who went first. And then you rolled attack versus defense. And you did addition and subtraction. And you did hit points. And it was, a, it was really this very...
0: It, it became it's, way normaler once it was the way normaler once
2: the yeah. dice hit the table in a, in a battle. or even just the way skills worked. like you roll the dice, you try to get a high number, you're going up against the DC it was all it, it, that part of it still was in 1970s right That was still sort of RuneQuesty, y um, even. And the new one, it's much more formalized and you have a pair of dice which are your lots. And you keep those dice as your lots for the whole campaign, and you don't use them for anything else, and are the only dice that you roll at the table. And so you build up a history with that specific pair of dice as you're playing over the edge. And when you roll those dice, you're trying to roll high on the two dice, and then, in addition, any fours that you get mean something surprisingly good happens. Any three means something surprisingly bad happens. So in the old system, you could roll like, I'm going to roll three to 18, and it's just a weird kind of bell curve. Now it's this dichotomous or or discontinuous thing where you can get a a nine, or you can get a nine that has a four in it. And those are different. And um, and then those fours and those threes, we call them twists, those encourage the game master to to do something that's that's not just linear with the result it's not like how hard did you hit them but like what happens during the fight and so now you will roll those dice for uh you can do that for say a whole attempt to burglarize a house and instead of rolling to climb the wall and then rolling to move silently across the room and whatever like you would do in call of cthulhu now it's okay we don't we just want to care. It's like a movie. We, we we want to see what results from this. So you roll the dice and you figure out what the results are for the whole event of burgling the house. It could go terribly wrong. You could find something really good you don't expect. And so it has this, it's like you're casting lots, divining your future, only it really is going to turn out that way. When you cast your lots and it's bad, you really do immediately get something bad. Or maybe maybe it's not even immediate. Maybe now the game master has uh, a ace in their sleeve. And it's like, well, you... You trip this alarm, but you don't even know it, and so now you are being tracked. And you're gonna when you head back home, now the bad guys know where you are, or right. whatever, yeah. right? And so it's it's even more free form in that you're not rolling off against each other, against difficulty classes, or or what have you. And then that also makes it move really, really fast. It's so fast that now it, for me it takes more prep to do a session because the characters move through twice
0: the material. And, uh, combat is radically simplified as well?
2: Yeah, so there's no hit points. Um, they, you, uh, if something really bad happens to you, that's called getting blanked, right? Like, like fill in the blank. You could be, you know, confused, beaten up, roughed up, uh, cut, stunned, zapped, fried. You know, all sorts of bad things can happen to people. Uh, and if three strikes and you're out, you get blanked three times, then you're, you're out of the fight, whatever that means in terms of the, the context. But it's all very uh, chunky. And, right. and So it's sort of more like a movie where you want to see what the whole results are of the person's action, not everything they do, and you care about, like, well, okay, they've, they've been knocked back on their heels or they've been beat up, but you don't care how many hit points they have.
1: Right. And you, and you can't tell anyway. And you can't tell anyway. Because the, the movie is you know not presenting that because that's yep. unnecessary information. And right. It just gets in the way. So the, uh, the, the three strikes and you're out uh, of the story in whatever way. So in a way, what you're doing is you're taking the combat and making it the same as character generation, in that
2: anything yeah. can mean anything. That That's right. Like Yeah, there, there isn't like, okay, I'm going to roll to hit that person. It's like, all right, well, I'm going to pick up a chair and throw it at them, or I'm going to roll the dice and see how I do, and then improvise what happens based well, on if the you're, results. If, you're, if right. you're
1: fighting like a... Um, uh, uh, the, the, the god of Tyrian purple who's been awakened by uh, the, the insects that live in the cochineal. Yep. And, uh, you know, For example. we roll the die, and, and my arm is purple. Yep. It's not a hit point thing. My is right. purple. Right. I, I, oh, another blank. My oh. other arm is purple. Right. Oh, I, I yep. see where yep. this is going. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Exactly.
0: <laughs> uh, well, unfortunately, where I see this is going is at the end of our segment, but you can learn way more about uh, Over the Edge Kickstarter by going to the Over the Edge Kickstarter page, which you can get to through a link in our show notes or just by going to Kickstarter and typing in Over the Edge. Thanks, yeah. Jonathan.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks. It's a pleasure. It a guys. Yeah. Terrific.
1: Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory.
0: Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The
1: long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the Game Moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos.
0: Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of Eons Pre-Human. Percentile-based rules compatible
1: with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and sourcebooks.
0: A Universe of Cosmic Terror lurks Just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? It's time to wend our way once more up the creakety cobweb stairs where, once again, we will wave at the portrait of Madame Blavatsky. Uh, she seems a little less glowery than usual because she might even be mentioned in the body of this segment a little bit. Uh, and then we're going to head on through to the Edwardian parlor where waits with a stern expression on his face because I'm sure he disapproves of this person as well he should, the Consulting Occultist, because Consulting Occultist is here to tell us about Julius Evola, this is the favorite occultist of such people as Steve Bannon, <laughs> Richard Spencer, and Alexander Dugan, who uh, also will warrant his own upcoming segment. The reason uh, I've put him on the agenda is I just finished reading a book, uh, which I'd recommend to everybody, uh, by a, a favorite author of the show, uh, Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump by Gary Lachman. Uh, he's a, uh, has written uh, many, uh, a. uh, scholarly book about uh, the occult, and uh, you're also a fan of his stuff, right, Ken?
1: Yes, a big fan. And the thing is, when you say scholarly book about the occult, I can see people's hackles rising. It is scholarly in the sense that it is well-researched and uh, excellently synthesized. It is not scholarly in that it assumes uh, a lot of prior knowledge, that it uh, talks only to other scholars. It is very, very approachable. It's it, it, they're, they're excellent they're, they're the sort of, you know, one of the best sort of popular histories of the occult. I think him and Jocelyn Godwin are probably the two best writers on the occult right now. And both of them come from a place of at least openness, but neither of them from a place of full-throated uh, belief right. in the sense that uh, we're talking about.
0: Right. And that's what I wanted to suggest with the word uh, scholarly, rather than the fact that you will be drowned in footnotes. Now, and there
1: are footnotes, but they're not drowning footnotes. They're not they're drowning. are perfectly they're
0: nice they're, they're the They're the, the right quantity of them. Just enough to exactly. get your ankles wet. Yes. Yep. Um, so, uh, Julius Evola, uh, he was, uh, Italian, uh, born in 1898, died in 1974. And, uh, as you can guess, uh, by, uh, the names of his fan club is not an admirable figure. And if you are talking to someone at a cocktail party about the occult and they evince an admiration for Julius Evola, uh, after this segment, you will know uh, exactly who you're dealing with and uh, you will want to back slowly away from him. So he was a uh political uh theorist of course as well as uh, an occultist which explains uh, the uh interest of uh the authoritarian right in him. The occult part of his thought uh, begins with traditionalism which uh, begins with a guy named uh, Rene Guenon. So do you want to uh, pick up uh the thread of that thought with him and then move on to Evola.
1: All right. Well, Renee Guanan is, I guess, the sort of the prior generation of, um, uh, occultists to, to Evola. And Guanan is looking at, uh, the world and where, uh, say our old buddy, Madame Blavatsky says, what the current world needs is a dose of the ancient wisdom, uh, which it turns out completely, uh, predicts all the modern things that you like, like Darwinism and women's suffrage and whatnot. So, be a theosophist. Reneguadon says, well, that's all well and good, except the real old ways are none of your modernness. They're the tradition. And if you do not believe in something with a root going a thousand years back, at least, you are going to be blown away by all these changes and useless as a human being. So, he sort of moves into... The theosophical space, but he sort of picks Sufism as his thing that uh, non-Europeans like that he decides is the right thing. And, um, rather, at least from my perspective, he sort of misses the point of Sufism because Sufism is like the least authoritarian of the (sighs) religious orders of the, of the Islamic uh, sphere. And he says Sufism is an initiatory package, but it takes you back to everyone being authoritarian and running your life um uh, in a order that is sort of laid down uh by the stars, by the gods, by the ancient forces of the world, whatever that might be. And that's sort of the traditional notion that you go all the way back to the original uh version of whatever it is. And in this case, since the original version is this sort of um mishmash of 19th century uh, comparative religions notion of the original religion. It pretty much involves strong gender roles and human sacrifice. But uh Gwena'n wrote a lot of books that sort of lay out the crisis of the world and then propose the solution of regression into uh, an ancient past constructed intellectually, basically. Guananists even now get very mad if you call Guanan a fascist. But for a guy who wasn't a fascist, a lot of fascists really liked Guanan. Let's just say that.
0: Right. And Evola himself said that he was not a fascist, but a super fascist. Super fascist. Yeah. So that's uh, that's ominous, of course. Yes. And, and you know, he may have been a
1: super fascist, but he was willing to make exceptions for the little guy because he worked for the, uh, Dienst in Italy, the Nazis, not even his own fascists, and he also, uh, thought that Himmler was quite a fella. And here's the thing, right? If you are gonna say, I am a great and original thinker, and Even if you are a great original wrong thinker and you come away from Heinrich Himmler thinking that guy is worth admiration, then you are not a very good thinker because that guy is a crackpot and a chicken head. And I don't care how fascist you are, how super fascist you are, you should have noticed that and, you know, shined him off, which if you're an Italian baron, you could have done.
0: Right. But if if you're looking for an occultist to uh, admire today and and you yourself aspire to be a super fascist, do you want someone who's... uh Fascism adjacent, as, as Evela is, not necessarily, uh, you know, that, that he, uh, broke from Nazism on the grounds that it was not authoritarian enough. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, so <laughs> this is who we're dealing with. Uh, but his occult thought, uh, in the twenties, he, uh, edited and, uh, wrote for under a number of pseudonyms, an occult journal called Err. Uh, which is of course, uh, again relates to the, the er reality of, uh, people like him, uh, being in charge and stomping people, uh, beneath his, uh, his massive feet. But it's the massive
1: feet of his soul. Yes. He would create a, a spiritual reality in which everyone would have no choice but to snap into place. There wouldn't even have to be stomping. That's how great it was. You would stomp just for the fun of it
0: though. Right. And so you're, you're uh, psychically stomping on people, uh, because one of the threads of his, uh, esotericism, uh, of which, uh, you know, he explored all sorts of different traditions. But the, uh, the thing he's talking about in Ur is the ability to, uh, impose Will on reality, and that goes beyond the political process of gaining power and rounding people up and putting them in internment camps and all the things that you do when you're a tyrant, but he also believed that you could magically bring those realities into play uh, by... Uh, sheer willpower, basically.
1: Which again is a very, very standard occult belief. I mean, it's basically the core of Kralian magic. It's, um, uh, Sorel was that only for communism or socialist anarchism, left anarchism. Um, so the, the notion of the sort of reworking reality by will, literally magical thinking is not alone to Evola. It's just that Evola is thinking very, very uh, super fascisty thoughts,
0: I guess. Uh, right. So is there between his taking uh Guanon and making it even more authoritarian than it already was and uh he's also building on the ideas of the synarchy which we talked about in episode 109 so he's sort of following in that tradition as well and then he goes and he explores alchemy and uh um, all sorts of again ironically all sorts of eastern traditions in order to somehow uh, prove and enact the superiority of of western power um is there Anything innovative about what he is doing, or is he just sort of distilling it uh, down so that he can be picked up generations later by the uh, current crowd of jackals?
1: I mean, well, the thing about Evola is that unlike a lot of these guys, and in kind of He's not – again, This maybe he's a victim of his translators who are probably all pinch-faced losers. But Evola's writing is not super stylish, but I think he's kind of like Nietzsche in that he sort of pre- presents these ideas in a very uh clear and very sort of immediate-seeming uh, way. So if you are like a college sophomore and you've never heard of anything and you read Nietzsche, you are going to be quoting Nietzsche – Endlessly. And I think Evola has some of that same effect. And certainly if you are reading it in a good translation, which maybe there are a good translation, I admit I have not hunted down textual recondite, uh, the recondices of, uh, Julio Evola. But if, um, if you're reading Evola and you run across these concepts and no one has ever talked to you about, uh, tradition or you haven't, you know, read Eliade and sort of gotten the, um, uh, denatured version of that, uh, with a, a smattering of actually good scholarship, then you, are, are maybe sort of, you know, hit like a blivet where he says the modern world is, uh, is already broken. The only thing you can do is remake it first in your own mind and then in society. And here are the, you know, sort of straight up Dumazil, um, uh, three casts of society. It, it, it's all very, very internally coherent and, and has a sort of a, a, a fascination that I, I, you can, you can look at it and say, I get why that's a thing. I don't think that Evelyn, is an original thinker, but I think Evola would have probably, you know, challenged you to a duel if you'd called him an original thinker. His notion was that he was literally trying to go back to original truth and just
0: revealing it, right? Right. So he was he was packaging uh, all of these ideas in a way that, uh, especially later, uh, would turn out to be uh, resonant for uh, for some people. And also part of the package is uh, really, really blatant. Uh, violent misogyny as well, so, uh. Yes, that's a big that. part
1: of his notions, because, uh, al- along with the whole post-Freud generation, he believes that sex and sex roles are the central core of, of human existence, and so, since he's trying to rewrite human existence, he's rewriting them in this, uh, uh, also, and since he was a horrible power worshiper, you can sort of see where that was gonna go.
0: Right, and, uh, you know, one of the big audiences traditionally for Extremist views of all kinds is, uh, people who, uh, think too much and have, uh, trouble, uh, relating to women. So, uh, that's a, an excellent way to be, uh, drawn into this, this thought web. So I guess all we need to do in terms of making, uh, him gameable is have the bad guys, uh, have esoteric, you know, basically his philosophy is, uh, to a large extent, the the esoteric philosophy of uh, gaining power through a magical thought in, in the esoterics, there are demons uh, to come and do that for you, and th- they always disappoint you by eating your head at some point, uh, but you could certainly have an esoteric cell that, uh, the leader of which has all of the uh, collected works of Evola on his shelves, and that's a big mm-hmm. uh, tip-off uh, that you would spot immediately with your uh, occultism uh, ability. Uh, are there other ways that we could draw a, a group of traditionalist bad guys into a, a scenario?
1: It, you know, The thing about Evola is that he sort of takes all the stuff that we're used to as sort of a libertine uh i mean it's not like Crowley was any better to women than Evola, but um it, it, Crowley expresses it in a sort of more libertine let your freak flag fly sort of way it it's all that so you can sort of masquerade them as as just crowleyite sex cultists and then you realize oh there's something even worse than Crowley at the heart of this there is legitimate magical attempts to uh, uh ruin the world just like it was ruined in the good old uh mythical Indo-European past um, and, and you're sort of following back and you think oh this is going to be good fun with um, uh, with I am and, and Awas and all that good stuff and wham uh, it's sort of a left turn within the left hand turn that you already took uh, when you thought it was just um, good old fashioned uh dressing up in goat heads and having sex so that's sort of Evola as the surprise at the heart of what you already thought was a weird magic sex cult but you didn't know the sort of the weight that would be put on that i don't know how gameable that is though because the th- the things that you would notice are different are pretty grotesque to do at the table. I, I guess if you've got a, a table that really, really like True Detective, I guess you don't have a problem with it. The other thing you can do, of course, is that because Evola's Italian, and the Italian occult scene and the Italian conspiracy scene is so completely underutilized in Anglophone gaming, um, I think that Evola becomes a really good sort of a uh, a Merlin or a, or a magic uh or clingsore, I'm sure he would insist, for your bad guy group, if you're setting at any time in the modern world, that they come out of Italy or that you are... Um, Italian good guys, and you're fighting Italian bad guys in sort of a giallo uh universe. So if you're playing a uh giallo uh world that you think is, is sort of fear itself and it turns out these things all have some sort of hideous connection to a, a truly giallo dark house, uh in that dark house is maybe an undying Giulio Evola who has made himself immortal with his crazy uh, mystical Buddhism, and uh removed himself as a dark bodhisattva to continue controlling things. I think that'd be kind of fun. Right,
0: because it's often a trope in, in giallo that there are multiple murderers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, all of a sudden, Oh, what? this whole house is full of people who are all, you know, grotesque uh, wielders of, of size and they haven't coordinated. And it's like, what kind of universe is this? Well, obviously it's one in which the drifting will of Julius Evola has taken over this, this house and uh, turned it uh, into a slaughterhouse. Basically.
1: Um, the other thing that you can do with, with Evola is if you have a, a game where you're already, uh, trying to uh either do time travel, which is, I guess, the slightly, not the boring way, but the sort of uh, conventional way to do this, or you have a game where you're trying to do some sort of myth travel. You're doing a, a modern-day set hero quest where you're going off into the mythic realm to do good uh, for the community garden or whatever, and you realize that there's these other bad hero questers who are going to a different mythical universe. And it's the mythical mythical universe that, um, Evola, uh, built, uh, using Eliade and using other sort of uh, right wing traditionalist mythographers. And that their version of Zeus is way different than your version of Zeus. And their version of, um, uh, Vishnu is way different than your version of Vishnu. And you actually have sort of a, a war in the God realm between different versions of the God realm. So you're reifying the thing that happens in RuneQuest, et cetera. And Evela can be your bad guy, especially in a modernist uh, version of that. That again, he's the guy who, who made it up to the other world and, and is drawing all of these sort of, uh, uh, modern day third rate jacklegs uh, to him to imbue them with real power and send them back to earth to bring about the mythical
0: change that he wants. Right. And you can team up with the representatives of whatever, uh, you know, Eastern, legit philosophical mystical view uh he's trying to pervert to their ends and they are uh, they're looking to uh you know get rid of that uh, misuse of their powers and so they're looking for people to uh, uh team up with so you can uh, uh you know join up with your uh bodhisattvas or or what have you as as part of this uh, uh clash in the other realm I I do want to quote to
1: end with a quote from the master and let's all see if we can think who this quote for the master might apply to today. And we can take a little Evola into our own lives. So this is Evola in 1945 in an essay called American Civilization. Uh, the United States is the final stage of decline into the inferior formlessness of vacuous individualism, conformity, and vulgarity under the universal aegis of money making. And Evola thought that was a bad thing. Go figure.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Well, and uh, as uh, is a a common rule on the podcast, whenever there's a clash in the other realm, uh, we have to get out of this podcast and into that realm in order to uh, take part in it. Uh, But we'll be back uh, with another exciting episode in another exciting week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors! Atlas Games! Pelgrane Press! Ask Fagown! Arc Dream! Dark Tower! And Pro Fantasy Software! Music as always is by James Semple! Audio editing by
1: Rob Borges! Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin.
0: Delve into Dungeons Perilous alongside such Patreon backers as... Lewis R. Evans. Mark Giles. Rich Ranallo. Scott Stefanski. And Corey Welch. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other unite right merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash ken robin now available start with earth on twitter he's at kenneth height and he's at robin d laws see you next time when once again we will talk about stuff